Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, today's topic is one that we both spent a lot of time contemplating when we were local elected officials, because it's an ever-present discussion point, particularly among folks who really didn't understand how government works. Yeah, yeah I remember we hear all the time from people, even other politicians, asking, why doesn't government act more like a business? The argument always seemed to stem from the perception that capitalism, with its enterprising spirit, its competitive dynamic, and its focus on the bottom line, made this country great. So why not have government operate the same way? But an interesting question is, why do so many people think that? I mean, it's not intuitively obvious that they should both act or behave in similar ways, yet that equivalency is very pervasive in today's political discourse. I agree. And to reiterate a point we've made in other podcasts, we need to acknowledge you and I are both committed capitalists. We're That's big right. fans of the system and have both done reasonably well within it. But as we've also discussed, capitalism doesn't address key aspects of what all of us want out of our society. Yeah, I know it seems obvious, but we have to continually reiterate that government institutions exist for a different purpose than business, and therefore they should operate by a different set of rules, right? These distinctions aren't trivial or accidental. They're based on the very specific design and purpose of these institutions. Which doesn't mean government can't learn from business, or I suppose even business learn from government. But today we'll talk about why it's a false premise to suggest that government can act or should act like a business. In fact, we'll show most of us actually want, perhaps without knowing it, for the two systems to work differently. <laughs> and although there are many differences, I think we're going to bucket them into five areas. The first one is mission and focus. The second is risk tolerance. The third is measuring value. The fourth is decision making. And the last is the role of competition. So let's take each of these one at a time. Well, you know what? I always like having a roadmap in front of me, Seth. Thanks. <laughs> okay, Seth, well, let's start traveling that road and we'll go with the first topic you mentioned, mission and focus. In business, I mean, the goal is generally pretty simple, right? To make money or more specifically to maximize return to shareholders, whether those are public company shareholders or even the individual and owner of a business. And achieving that goal often involves, generally involves, a lot of hard work, and it can be pretty complicated, but the goal itself is actually pretty simple. And it's the profit motive that is the driving force behind capitalism and the catalyst for innovation, efficiency, competition, etc. And a business, particularly under market capitalism, does this by organizing the self-interest of many different people to achieve something that none of those people could do by themselves. Government, on the other hand, is a system wherein large numbers of smart, self-centered social animals organize themselves to live and work together in communities so that they can, as individuals, benefit from being part of that community. But the intent is not to make a profit in sort of an economic sense, right? There are certainly benefits that all of us in the community receive from the system, but they're a little harder to measure and definitely more complicated as an organizing principle than just making money. You know, Seth, I sometimes wonder if the way we have embraced extreme libertarianism in the United States since 1980 may have blinded us to just how different government and business are. It's not clear to me that our ancestors saw such a stark divide the way we do, with one side being superior to the other. They just accepted that each was there for its own purpose. And the different purpose of business and government leads to probably one of the most, if not the most, important distinction between them, what customers they serve and how much they serve them. Businesses, for example, choose what business they want to be in by definition, and they do that generally because they feel they could bring a differentiated value to a certain set of customers versus, you know, competitors or alternatives, you know, to them. And critically, businesses, unlike government, get to pick their customers. 
even a company like Apple, which sure seems sometimes to want to serve everyone on the planet, still makes its products for only a subset of the market. Yeah, that's right. And it's, this is not to say that businesses actively refuse to sell to certain people. It's just the very nature of their messaging, the product focus, sort of by definition, will only appeal to a chosen subset of the market. They could try to avoid customers, right, who provide less revenue than the costs to serve them, or perhaps that ones that will harm their brand, you know, etc. Government institutions don't have the luxury of picking their customers. They must serve everyone in their domain. And given how different people and their interests are from each other, the needs that are being met or that must be met and the services needed to be provided are very diverse as well. Which leads us to an example that both of you and I are very familiar with, which are public schools, right? And we compare it to, let's say, a private school, which by definition gets to choose what student it serves, right? And by doing so, it should excel because it effectively becomes a specialist in delivering a certain type of education to a certain subpopulation of students. Uh, economists refer to this phenomenon as, quote-unquote, cherry-picking. Public schools, on the other hand, have to serve all the children that live within that population, regardless of what their backgrounds or capabilities are. Right, and so therefore the needs, the abilities, and the respective support structures of these children are much more diverse than your typical private school. You know, Seth, when I was on the school board, I saw firsthand how charter schools, which are public schools but have some ability to select who attends them, showcase this subtle difference you're talking about. That's absolutely right. And I think related to this notion of mission is the concept of efficiency, right? It's a big complaint that we heard a lot from our citizens and that citizens in general have about their government, that just government just isn't efficient enough. Let's talk about that. Is that a fair complaint? I don't really think so. I think people mix up the notions of efficiency and efficacy when they make those comments, particularly in the context of government services. We tend to forget governments, unlike businesses, must serve everyone equally. That small difference has enormous implications. I mean, consider a fire department. Nobody wants their local fire department to be staffed and organized so it's constantly deployed, even though that would be the most efficient thing to do, to use the least resources. Because the result would be the fire department not getting to certain fires on time. Who wants to risk having their home be the one that doesn't get served in a timely fashion? So we want fire departments to do something no business would willingly do and staff up closer to peak need. Right, which means many firefighters will be idle for a good part of the day. And we should be okay with that because it's much better than the alternative, right? So in this case, yeah, the firehouse is effective with respect to accomplishing its mission, but it's not efficient right, in terms of a more traditional business paradigm of like output per person hour. The desired goal is achieved by something other than the strategy taken by your typical efficient business. And we have to keep in mind, of course, that this doesn't mean that government can't be both more effective and more efficient, but we can't use private sector standards to judge that. The very requirement to serve a broad, diverse population inherently makes government less efficient as compared to its private entity counterparts. However, being less efficient does not mean it is not fulfilling its mission and purpose. That's something that even staunch libertarians sometimes recognize. Or as one of my favorite authors, who was a staunch libertarian, put it, government has to serve both the newly minted billionaire and the recently laid off textile worker. And there's another angle here, too, which has come to light, you know, or made more obvious recently with the pandemic, because it taught us and many businesses that, you know, quote unquote, maximum efficiency also means kind of minimal capability of responding to large disruptions, you know, in supply chain, for example, you know, and government services can less afford these shocks, right? So there's, there's kind of a weakness in the just-in-time operational philosophy that has served so many businesses as well. Governments just have to think of their supply, their inventory, those sort of, those service capabilities uh, very differently. 
Okay, Seth, let's move on to that second factor you mentioned, the differing risk tolerances of governments and businesses. We touched on this a bit in the Froggy Skies episode where we examined how and why governments compensate employees differently because of this. But those differing risk tolerances affect more than just compensation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, risk as we discussed, is central to the capitalistic notions of profit maximization and competition. You know, but for every company that succeeds, many more fail. But this is totally acceptable in a capitalistic system because it is this risk-taking which fuels innovation and growth. But individuals working at a business would never take even those risks unless they had a system that protected their downside. The corporation, the corporate shield, and even the concept of bankruptcy were invented to do exactly that. They collectively shield individual owners, directors, officers, and other employees from personal liability beyond what they may have invested in the company itself. In fact, the bankruptcy process of this country has been absolutely crucial to its economic growth. Without a bankruptcy system, individuals would certainly not have taken the risks they have. And without the risk taking, there would be much less innovation and growth. Government is different. With very limited exceptions, we don't want government agencies to be able to go out of business. The risk of losing the public services they provide is just too great. Yeah, of course. I mean, we may be okay with a restaurant going under, for example. But what happens if my police force disappears? <laughs> Do I just not have police protection for a while? I mean, this is just not, it's not acceptable, of course. So we want government agencies to be more risk averse. Having their services available is more important to us than optimizing how those services get delivered. Right. And in a government setting, risk is also measured in more than just financial terms, right? For example, we all know schools can improve. You and I spent a lot of time, many years on that concept, <laughs> right? But as we've also discussed in previous podcasts, communities are often cautious about experimenting with new approaches in teaching their kids. Yeah. In a corporate setting, experimenting on a new product just entails possibly losing the investment of time, money, materials, whatever that you've made in that new product. But people are naturally much more cautious about experimenting with themselves or their children's future. This same phenomena is true for many other government services. People just perceive that the price for being wrong is often just too high to try something new, even if that new thing might be better. You know, Mark, as we've discussed before, risk is only relevant when we pair it with an estimated return or value of some kind received. This is the third factor we wanted to discuss, measuring value. The hope is that every decision we make enhances the risk versus return balance in our favor, right? Or, you know, why would we be even considering that choice? But in order to understand that balance, we need to measure the value impact from our choices. And in the business world, determining the value generated by some activity is relatively easy because it's heavily, sometimes totally, focused on money, which makes choices fairly easy to analyze. As we said earlier, there may be disagreement within a business about how to maximize profits, but the end goal, the end game, is rarely in dispute, because money trumps almost everything in a business context. Yeah, and that's right. On an oval, businesses do many other things that they say are for other reasons, but those reasons are usually in service of an end goal, which is about a return to shareholder. And fundamentally, that's not true for government institutions, right? In any sizable group of citizens, there will be honest disagreements on what goals should or should not be pursued. Even within a small city like San Carlos, for example, some citizens are going to favor high growth and more development, while others will want exactly the opposite. And the value impact of those choices impacts on traffic, what happens to public services, whether or not there's a change in the business climate, are going to affect everyone differently. Yeah, and that's a really important point, because unlike in the private sector, this value can't be easily monetized, right? Your $10 dividend from Apple is the same as my $10 dividend. But if I never go for walks, the better sidewalk that you enjoy may be of no value to me. 
Many government services are just inherently difficult or maybe even impossible to monetize. I think there are two reasons for that. The first is, how do you measure what government produces? A lot of things like security, education, happiness, community satisfaction, convenience, recreation. I, I wouldn't have any idea how you'd monetize those things. Yeah, it's just pretty difficult. I mean, we all value each of those things, but, you know, try to get people to tell you how much they're worth, right? <laughs> yeah. They're fundamentally difficult to measure and impossible to get an agreement on. And I think the second and probably less appreciated problem is that government services generally involve really long time horizons. Businesses may do three to five year strategic plans, sometimes longer, but a lot of their decision making is focused on shorter horizons. Government services, on the other hand, can affect people's lives decades after they are delivered. Yeah, we, you and I have both struggled with this question when we served on our local school board. I mean, how does the education I provide a kindergartner today affect his or her life 20 years from now? And how does it affect other people's lives in terms of economic growth, in terms of crime or other areas? It's pretty tough. I remember we both discussed how extremely limited and, in fact, often counterproductive most seemingly objective measures of school quality really are. Yes, it is daunting to try to measure that connection and near impossible for all of us to take that into account when asking governments to make decisions today which affect theirs and others' lives decades from now. Although there is generally no end to the number of irate community members who will raise objections about whatever you're trying to do, particularly if they feel they're being asked to pay for something that doesn't benefit them. <laughs> yes, we hear that a lot. And that does relate to another topic, which we're going to save for another podcast, about why governments are often accused of waste. And although government may be at times inefficient, waste is sort of in the eye of the beholder, right? For example, if you're personally not in favor of the California state government spending money on high-speed rail, then from your point of view, it's a waste of money. But a proponent of high-speed rail will consider it a, an investment. So the, and that's regardless of how, quote-unquote, efficient the government is being with that spending. Yeah. You know, Seth, you're reminding me of an aphorism I developed uh, being an elected official, which is uh, very simple. One man's irrelevancy is another man's vital public interest. Absolutely. I look forward to our talking about that in a future podcast. Okay, Seth. So I think we've established how and why government's objectives are necessarily different from those of a business. But I think there are other kinds of differences that come into play also. What about how the two organizations actually make their decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Decision making is the fourth factor we wanted to discuss. I love this quote from Otto von Bismarck, right? He allegedly said that, quote, you know, laws like sausages cease to inspire respect in proportion as to we know how they are made. <laughs> Anyone named von Bismarck clearly must know his sausages. You, you would think, right? And the work of government is like sausage making, right? It's slow, sloppy and ugly at times. So let's discuss why that is. I mean, I think there are probably two main reasons. One which occurs to me is that needing to serve a broad constituency with services that are difficult to value, all while remaining risk averse, ain't easy. In fact, it's very hard. Governments will always move slower because they have to find solutions that work for the largest number of members of their community. And I think the second one, and perhaps one even less appreciated, is, is something that lies in this other fundamental tenet of government, which is openness. We see the sausage making because we're allowed to, right? It's our very witnessing of this process which inherently makes it more sausage-like. We also have the related concept of due process, which was invented for the public sector and has become an integral part of it, at least in democracies. There is little or no concept of this in the private sector as long as actions are legal. 
Or, or at least not noticed by the authorities, right? <laughs> right, right. We've both worked in a number of companies where I'm sure we had some painful decision-making processes, but at least none of them were open for the public to witness. That would have made them much, much harder. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, business interactions are designed to be, by and large, secret, right? Compensation levels of most employees are secret. Strategic plans are secret. Computer code is secret. You know, the discussion at board of directors meetings is mostly secret. And on top of all that, as we mentioned before, the decision environment is simpler. The choice making the most money pretty much nearly always trumps everything else. Right. And there's often less people involved in those decision makings. And, you know, so that's why this secrecy or at least at minimum, the ability to sort of selectively choose what information is made public and what is not, except, of course, you have to you know, follow the law. That secrecy is a cornerstone of capitalism. It allows companies to compete with each other, to shape their overall message to the market and to manage their employees in, frankly, the most flexible way. But openness is more than just letting people observe what's going on. Public decisions require the input and participation and acceptance of and by the public. Involving a broad and diverse group of constituents necessarily makes it slower and more complex because everyone values public services and risks differently. And as we know personally, right, board meetings of all elected governmental bodies are held in public with few and narrowly defined exceptions. Um, almost all contracts that we had to engage in are made public. All salaries are made public. The process to get bids on large projects is a public and inclusive process. And in the case of contracts, losing bidders can actually challenge any contract award requiring the public agency to go back and revisit the decision. Right. So think of all of those requirements in a business context, right? No business person would willingly accept such an approach. It would be viewed as impossible to run a real business that way. Could you imagine a scenario where any Apple shareholder could get three minutes to address the board of directors <laughs> of Apple at every board meeting? Yeah. Or if one of Apple's competitors could just listen in to the key strategic discussions the company is having. <laughs> exactly. But this seeming lack of efficiency and flexibility is the price we pay for openness. And after all, as these are public institutions funded with tax dollars, would we expect our citizens to want something less than maximum transparency? That's right. And we should acknowledge, though, there are areas of government that are secret, which include things such as, you know, war plans all the way to the identity of kids expelled from school. But in the aggregate, the level of secrecy is minuscule compared to that in business. And even then, with those those ability to keep certain things secret, we have ongoing debates, vigorous ones, about what should and shouldn't be allowed to be secret. You know, just debates over the FISA court, the War Powers Act, you name it. And voters always want more transparency and openness. And this is why I've never heard of any candidate for any elected office whose platform didn't include some <laughs> form of, you know, more openness. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And that's how it's supposed to be. The public benefits from being part of the public process and it being open. You know, it's funny, while serving on the school board, I was once approached by a parent in the district and he was complaining that we made decisions way too slowly. You know, and I kind of knew him, so I felt I could sort of joke around with him a little bit. So I, you know, to make a point, I said back to him, hey, we'll stop coming to our meetings then. We'll be a lot more efficient. <laughs> yeah, although I think we both agree that more participation by the public makes things better even if sometimes it slows down an already slow process. And the reason for that is very simple. It increases buy-in and confidence in the outcome being fair or acceptable or whatever you want to call it, which is really critical for public decisions. Now let's pivot to the last factor, the role of competition. In the private sector, decisions are made in a competitive environment. So when we think about comparing business and government, we can't ignore the role of competition in each of these sectors and why it works and doesn't work depending on the context. 
For example, the role of competition comes up in the education space when people promote initiatives like charter schools or voucher systems. There are reasons we'll get into why this and other examples of what we might call missing competition aren't necessarily a good idea in the context of government. But as we talked about in our first podcast, private sector competition is absolutely essential, right, for keeping prices businesses charge and the quality they deliver all in check. And with few exceptions, you know, such as natural monopolies, as we also discussed, this competition is fundamental to a capitalist system. But competition often means that some entity wins and some entity loses. I mean, losing could mean just having the smaller market share, but could also mean going out of business. In fact, businesses close down and others start up every day. Government agencies, on the other hand, don't compete in the same sense. And it's really kind of unrealistic to ask them to. Do you want to have two police forces fighting to get to the same crime scene first? Do we want government agencies to go out of business and others start up on a regular basis? Of course not. Consistency of delivery is a critical feature of public service. Yeah, and what I've told most people is an example, like, you know, if my TV manufacturer goes out of business, you know, okay, no big deal. I'll buy my next TV from someone else, right? But for our armed forces, do we want a different organization managing the country's defense every year? Fire departments are another example of this. They didn't used to be public entities in the United States prior to the Civil War. Insurers paid individual fire brigades based on who was first to get to a burning building and save it. Uh, this didn't tend to work too well for obvious reasons, and it led to the modern approach of publicly run fire departments. Yeah, we've already discussed that many government services have the attributes of what's called a natural monopoly and also something that are called public goods. Both of these are exceptions to the normal capitalistic model that requires competition. And we've also just discussed the lack of clear success metrics for most government services. So those really muddy the metrics that would be the basis for any competition anyway. But there also are a few additional problems when thinking about competition in a government context. The first, I think, is that competition requires the ability of customers to be able to change providers without a lot of friction. Put another way, competition is based on the premise that customers can vote with their feet, meaning they can easily pick and change the services and products that they feel best serve their needs. To do this, there needs to be little or no friction in how they change providers. Yeah, that's right. If customers can vote with their feet, then competition will have no effect. You know, an example I think of is if there's a service that has to be consumed like every day, such as let's, education, as we're both familiar with, factors such as physical distance really matter. Like even if I think there's a school that's 30 miles away is much better than the school that's three miles away, I may not be able to or willing to go to that farther school. Right. In that case, there's little benefit from competition between those schools. This is why the notions of school choice and vouchers are really more theoretical than practical. And unlike a private sector service like a restaurant, it's impractical and potentially harmful to keep switching your preferences anyway. Education, I think, also highlights the classic cherry picking effect we mentioned earlier. Parents who have the means, the time, money or other resources are better able to commit to sending their child to a different school, while those without the means in practice have no such choice. If the bulk of your quote-unquote customers can't really switch, competitive pressure is limited and the potential community-wide benefits of competition can't appear. Instead, you get increasingly unfair service delivery. And I think the flip side of this competition coin is a requirement on the provider side, right? They must have ample and flexible capacity, meaning they must be able to add capacity to meet new demand or to raise prices, for example, from these new customers who are voting with their feet. And that's relatively easy for most businesses, but fairly difficult for a government agency, such as a school, right, which is limited to the capacity of its physical plant, you know, certainly in the, in the short to medium term. In addition, 
in my experience, taxpayers generally balk at paying for extra capacity of anything of any kind. Of the tax measures I worked on in my elected career, and there were quite a number of them, the two which failed did so, I'm pretty sure, in large part because they were seeking to add something new and better to the community rather than simply addressing a critical shortage. At best, even if competitive pressures were to exist and customers could switch seamlessly, the actual providers, the schools in your example, could only change very slowly to meet such changes, which kind of undercuts the whole point of competitive pressure. You know, now that we've covered the five main areas of differences between government and business, it's worth noting that there's another twist to this story, Mark. And although capitalism is the best system we have, it is, as we've discussed in our first podcast, based on certain core assumptions, which, without government involvement are not or cannot be met. And in addition, businesses are run by people, and most of us are fallible. So therefore, businesses, you know, governments too, are also fallible. You know, there's an argument that civilizing organizations like government grew out of the parent-child wiring that humans have, and which is necessary for us to develop into fully functioning adults. Because unlike other animals, humans don't come pre-programmed to be able to do most of the things they need to do or are capable of doing. An unintended consequence of this, I suspect, is that there's a subconscious belief that government should, like the ideal parent, be perfect. So let's talk about those imperfections. And certainly we've all witnessed, you know, whether it's oil spills or unsafe toys or financial market manipulation, you know, whatever it is, capitalism does not in and of itself protect the citizenry from unscrupulous behavior or actions that fall through the cracks of normal laissez-faire economics. So government is in the odd position of both being an enabler of capitalism by providing the regulatory environment which promotes business and innovation and a check on its potential excesses. Right. And a simple example, right? I mean, only the most orthodox of libertarians would suggest that we'd be better off without an FDA that had at least <laughs> some ability to regulate our food supply to keep it safe. There's also an unfortunate feedback loop built into our economic government system. Economic power corrupts the political system which purportedly manages it. We've never found an answer to, say, limiting a billionaire's ability to shout down everyone else in the room because they can buy lots of media exposure for their views. Even though, on paper, that billionaire is no more significant politically and legally than the poorest person in the country. You know, which makes me think of another connection in this government and business issue. Because implicit in the notion that government should act more like a business is that a successful business leader should be really good at politics and perhaps even be better than someone who comes up through the more traditional political path. And yet the track record of business people going into political service, at least at the national level, is a mixed one at best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, our only president with an MBA was George W. Bush. And regardless of what you think about him politically, he reportedly had a pretty difficult time managing the complexities of the office. And many of the other presidents with business backgrounds, guys like Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, Jimmy Carter, Donald Trump, also represent a fairly mixed bag. And to be clear to our listeners, we are not trying to diss these guys. I mean, after all, we both have MBAs, too. <laughs> it's true. But it is interesting to note that the most successful of that group I just listed um, in terms of being a president was probably Harry Truman. And he was reportedly a bit of a failure as a businessman. So I just find that interesting. Presidents of the United States tend to be lawyers or career politicians, which is probably likely related to the differences we've been talking about between business and government. Yet despite that, for some reason, the American electorate seems to venerate business people who get into politics, even though over and over they seem to be disappointed after it happens. <laughs> Seth, I think you just found the topic for another podcast. 
Yes, I would enjoy discussing uh, that topic on a new podcast. Uh, But I do want to say that lest our listeners think we are singing the praises of government, you and I definitely are not. I mean, none of this analysis should suggest that government can't learn from business. You know, quite the contrary. You know, many innovations and methodologies developed in the private sector have been and should be adopted by many government agencies. We just have to recognize that government will always be a laggard by design because of its greater need to avoid or minimize risk and the greater challenge posed by having a very diverse set of customers, all of whom must be served. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we have to keep reminding ourselves that government doesn't have the freedom to choose not to serve certain individuals or groups. Of course, although we structure government to be less competitive because the cost of competition can be so high, remember that fire department example, there is also a cost to not having competition. It leads to, among other things, reduced pressure to optimize stuff and to improve efficiency. Like so many things in the public sector, it's a matter of striking a reasonable balance. Yes, so therefore one should not conclude that public agencies are beyond criticism. Of course not, right? There are legitimate differences in what we all value, and it's reasonable to debate the role of government agencies and the decisions made by our elected leaders. It's also very reasonable to debate whether we should even have a certain government service, and if so, how much we should spend on it. Yeah, we just need to remember in this debate, you know, how government is distinct from many of our own experiences in business. It's unfair and unproductive, more importantly, to criticize public agencies for doing what we have designed them to do. It would be far more useful to debate what things we want to be within the scope of public services by asking questions like, what do we value as a community? Or how do we value the long-term effects of government decisions made today? And, And last but not least, we should not forget that history shows public agencies are susceptible to corruption. You know, because especially for larger ones, there's a lot of money going around. (laughs) Yep. That's the main reason I think we have transparency laws as far as government spending is concerned. Although the irony is these types of transparency laws tend to slow down government (laughs) and actually make it operate even less like a business, even though you and I would both agree we absolutely need these kind of laws. Seth, what do you think are some specific areas where government could learn from business? To me, the one that comes into play the most, and it certainly happened on a local level, and I think it's certainly true on state and national levels, is communication. Generally, governments are pretty bad at, you know, marketing because they don't think of themselves as having a product or service to market per se, right? Even though it does, it does provide a large variety of goods and services, but it doesn't think of itself that way. So it doesn't put the kind of resources and emphasis and expertise into doing what businesses have learned over many years in terms of communication and marketing. I certainly saw that on both the school district and uh, city levels. Government bodies are often very cautious about spending money on anything that looks like, for lack of a better term, self-promotion. Besides, they tend to get attacked for wasting money if they ever do anything that even looks remotely <laughs> like that. That's right. And in fact, at least in California, there are even laws against certain kinds of governmental self-promotion. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, because businesses, they they understand sales. They understand marketing. Businesses understand product positioning. And, you know, it'd be great if government could think more about those issues. I think government would be helped if it took a broader view of how and why to communicate. After all, not all business communication is targeted at selling a specific product. Some is intended just to build and maintain brand awareness, which is kind of like how government can build better relationships with its constituents. Yeah, I've always said that people need clear explanations of government problems and insight into how and why decisions are made. I mean, basically, we need to support better civics education. Brother, I couldn't agree with that more. This could go a long way to building better trust and stronger relationships between the community that government serves and government itself. 
And if I could think of another area where government can learn from business, it's probably around technology. I mean, as we said, government tends to be a slow adopter. And it's partially due to a lot of the issues we've already discussed. But some of it is just from not focusing strongly or quickly enough or having the right resources and expertise in-house to sort of leverage modern technology to solve larger problems in serving their constituents. And let's not forget the financial side of government. Even though government finances are transparent by law, they ain't simple to understand and they're not easily understood. You know, and it's funny, even a small government like the San Carlos School District I mean, it had to track like dozens of different funds, depending where grants came from. It was sort of ridiculous. Yeah, the city of San Carlos faces similar issues regarding how it accounts for reserves. Interestingly, elected members of both the board and the city council tended themselves to get confused about what money was where and whether or not it could be spent. That's a really counterproductive situation. Yeah, but it's understandable. You know, government needs to do a better job at making its financials more understandable to the average American, showing trade-offs in the budget, outlining goals clearly, outlining its metrics, you know, all based on, on what it's spending. Well, Seth, we're now at that exciting point in our podcast where we try to suggest ways of addressing the issues that we've been discussing. Fair enough. Well, a big one for me is the fact that Americans tend to worship business principles a lot. And that's speaking from someone who's generally a big fan of business principles, right? But in the right context. But misapplied, business principles can undermine the very point of government and its central job of fostering a safe and healthy community. I think that's aggravated by the fact that successful business people, being human, will always be tempted to use their economic power to warp government to serve their self-interest at the expense of others. And there's really no perfect, simple answer to that conundrum. But it would at least help to stay focused on maintaining, for lack of a better term, fairness in access to the political system, even though that is difficult to do without interfering with the First Amendment. Still, few people will tolerate the loudmouth who seeks to dominate a spontaneous public forum, so I think there is a basis in human psychology to rein in those with abnormally large amounts of clout. But certainly there are structural ways to do that as well, one of which, of course, is campaign finance reform, at least to maximize disclosure of who's contributing to what. Yes, and at the very least, minimize or eliminate what we call dark money these days. We should all be entitled to know how some people in our community are seeking to guide or influence the political debate. And I think, Mark, another lesson here is to recognize what you don't know. I mean, remember the Dunning-Kruger effect from the previous podcast. One of the biggest lessons I learned from being an elected official long before I knew about Dunning-Kruger is to question my own ignorance when I see public officials doing something that looks dumb. I try to ask myself, what do they know that I don't? It's surprisingly hard to do. And I have to admit, I even find myself backsliding now that I'm not an elected official anymore. Well, and I think people do that in every context. We're all armchair quarterbacks and, you know, and yeah. be coaches and whatnot. But we do have to start from the baseline of assuming that at least most of the time, problems to solve in government are much more complex with a wider range set of constituents to serve than a seemingly equivalent problem in the private sector. We'd collectively and individually be better off if we each focused on improving the system by increasing engagement amongst our colleagues, by better disclosure, all those kinds of things, rather than simply tearing things down, particularly when we try and tear down part of government for its inability to do something that it's actually not designed to do in the first place. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this to you before, Mark, but, you know, the, they say there's no atheists in foxholes. But if anything, the last two years has clearly demonstrated that there are no libertarians in a pandemic. You know, <laughs> we need government. We can't tear, can't tear it down. We need it to work for us. It's also worth remembering two key takeaways from our very first podcast. 
Government is essential for market capitalism to function efficiently. And capitalism's focus is only a small part of what we all want out of our society. It ignores, by design, many critical aspects of a high-functioning community. So, in a sense, making government be too businesslike just fundamentally isn't really a good idea. Yeah, for sure. And I think the sort of the last lesson that comes to mind is to remind people to judge fairly. I mean, we shouldn't hold government to the same standard we hold businesses to. I mean, in some cases, it demands a higher standard, in some cases, a lower one. And, you know, and one of those higher standards has to do with what we discussed a bit earlier, you know, government ethics and transparency laws. I mean, don't make them looser to be more like business. You know, recognize they'll make government less efficient, but it's a really good trade-off. Right. Our current political environment screams that we need to hold our elected officials to a higher ethical standard that we've so then we've so far allowed. I couldn't agree more. And as always, whenever any of us hears criticism of government, we always need to remember to ask ourselves about the speaker's motivation and how their self-interest might be better served by less government. You know, Mark, that's a point you've mentioned in a number of our podcasts, and that's a really important one to keep in mind. So I think that's a great lesson to end this podcast on. So, Mark, I thank you. I really wanted to discuss this topic because it's something we heard all the time, right, from our constituents <laughs> who always compared us, how we operated, to how they believe, you know, a business should operate. I, I loved it, too. And I have to say that we touched on, we've set up a number of future topics that are related to government and business that I think are going to make some really fun podcasts. Yeah, looking forward to it. So uh, thanks to our listeners. And thanks to you, Mark, for another great discussion. So signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that nobody tells you that government is none of your business. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.